0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, the beloved and frequently banned author Judy Blume. The novels she wrote in the 70s and 80s were devoured by young readers eager for stories that spoke to their hopes and anxieties about puberty, menstruation, and sex. Speaking to those anxieties also led her to become one of the most consistently banned authors. In a new documentary called Judy Blume Forever... She describes how she went from trying to fit into the role of conventional suburban wife, homemaker, and mother to a literary superstar. Her breakthrough novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, has been adapted into a new film which is out in theaters. Justin Chang has a review. And journalist Virginia Sol Smith talks about her new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Judy Blume decided to stop writing after the publication of her 2015 book, In the Unlikely Event, but she's still a big part of pop culture. A new documentary streaming on Prime Video called Judy Blume Forever tells the story of how she went from suburban homemaker and mother to literary phenomenon. In the 70s, her novels for preteens and teens were bestsellers, but she also became famous for being banned. Her 1970 book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, was banned because it was about an 11-year-old girl worried that all the other girls were getting their period, developing breasts, and starting to wear bras. But she wasn't. Her 1975 book, Forever, about a senior in high school who falls in love with a boy, they have a sexual relationship, pledged to be together forever, until she realizes she's not ready to commit to forever. That was banned in many places, too, as was her novel, Dini, about a teenager diagnosed with scoliosis who has to wear a brace because that book mentioned that she'd discovered a special place in her body that gave her pleasure. The American Library Association has consistently placed Bloom on its list of most frequently banned authors, but the people banning her books can't ban the new film adaptation of her novel Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which is now out in theaters. A Netflix series reimagining Bloom's novel Forever is in the works, and Peacock is planning to produce an adaptation of Summer Sisters, one of Bloom's novels for adults. Bloom lives with her husband in Key West, Florida. Her state is the home of the Stop Woke Act and what's become known as the Don't Say Gay Law. Florida is also known for banning many books from school libraries, including Bloom's. She and her husband co-founded a non bookstore in Key West, where there's a section devoted to banned books. Judy Bloom, welcome to Fresh Air. The documentary is wonderful. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on the new film adaptation of Margaret and of all the other adaptations in the works. So I want to ask you, you know, you first experienced censorship in the 1980s after Ronald Reagan was elected and the moral majority and the Christian right, which had supported Reagan, were very politically empowered. And you've said it's different now because now it's the government doing some of the censoring. Can you talk about that a little bit, about the difference from your point of view?
1: Well, you know, I live in Key West. And even though we like to pretend that Key West is not in the state of Florida, it is. And we have the same governor. And um, just in Florida and just with our governor and our elected legislators— This is what's different. I mean, the censorship is coming from the government, coming from the legislators who are out there trying to pass laws that, to me, are crazy. And, um, you you know, they're trying to um, pass laws about what we can think, what our kids can think, what they can know, what they can talk about. I mean, there's there's legislation going on right now that says that girls in elementary school are not allowed to speak about menstruation. They can't talk about getting their periods. They can't ask any questions of their teachers, and the teachers cannot answer anything. I mean, this is, you know, where are we? What country is this? In your bookstore, you have a banned
0: book section. And I think there's a sign out front saying we sell banned books. What's
1: in the banned book section? It, well, that depends. It changes regularly, and we can't even begin to put all the banned books on one small table. Um, so, so the display changes. And uh, I have some picture books that I'm very, very fond of right now. Um, one is called... Julian is a mermaid, and the other is Julian at the wedding. And those books are under attack. They're beautifully illustrated, funny and charming books. And Julian likes to dress up in feathers and beads, and um, he has a wonderful aunt uh, who understands him and allows him to be himself. And so you know that who knows what you know who knows what julian is going to turn out to be in his life but this frightens people they don't want kids to know that this is even possible that a boy could like getting dressed up
0: let's talk a little bit about are you there god it's me margaret which has just been adapted into a new film And this was like your breakthrough book. This was your book that became huge. It became a phenomenon. And you described it as the first book that was written from the inside, not the outside. It's about an 11-year-old girl who's moved from Manhattan to suburban New Jersey. She's worried about fitting in to her new neighborhood and her new school, especially since some of the girls are going through puberty. They're wearing bras. They're getting their period. And she's not. How was menstruation first described to you?
1: Who told you about it, and what was your reaction? So I was about nine years old, and we had family in Queens, in Queens, New York. We lived in New Jersey. And we went to visit for the day, and my older cousin, Grace, wasn't feeling well. And I kept saying, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she said you'll find out when you're 13. Uh, and all the way home, I kept saying to my father, I think, what will I find out when I'm 13? I I want to know what I'll find out when I'm 13, what will happen? And so when we got home, my father took me on his lap. He's the one, he's the parent, the designated teller of truths. Um, but when it came to telling me about menstruation, I came away from this discussion believing that at a certain time when the moon was full, all women all over the world were having this wonderful experience. <laughs> and so when I would look out the window and it was a full moon, it was like, aha. I know what's going on. I didn't really understand the lunar cycle that he was trying to explain to me. He made it harder, I think, than it should have been. He tried his best. He always tried his best. So that was how I first learned. And then a little bit later on, my friend Rossi had a book. Her parents had given her a book. And that book explained it. You know, this was a long time ago, Terry. This was... Um, in the 50s, uh, but it explained it a little bit better. We were all very, very excited. See, this is why a book like M- Margaret
0: is so important and was especially important when when you wrote it because girls need to hear other girls talk about it and to read about it it's such a it's such a big deal (laughs) you know and that I mean and that it's healthy and normal yeah something to celebrate and that it sometimes comes late I mean my mother told me she got her period when she was nine and she tried for years you know she tried to prepare me for a really early period which which I didn't have early (laughs) and so like Margaret I thought like hmm something wrong with me you know
1: well that's the thing I mean the girls in Margaret and Margaret herself, and and looking back to my life, I wanted to know that I was normal and that I was okay. I want you to read a passage from
0: Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And this gets to two things. It gets to menstruation, and it also gets to her relationship with God. And I should preface this by saying she has one parent, Margaret has one parent who's Christian and one parent who's Jewish, and they're both pretty secular. And in this, in this passage, Margaret is really yearning <laughs> to get her period. She feels so left behind.
1: Nancy and her family went to Washington over Lincoln's birthday weekend. I got a postcard from her before she got back, which means she must have mailed it the second she got there. It only had three words on it. I got it. I ripped the card into tiny shreds and ran to my room. There was something wrong with me. I just knew it. And there wasn't a thing I could do about it. I flopped onto my bed and cried. Next week, Nancy would want to tell me all about her period and about how grown up she was. Well, I didn't want to hear her good news. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Life is getting worse every day. I'm going to be the only one who doesn't get it. I know it, God, just like I'm the only one without a religion. Why can't you help me? Haven't I always done what you wanted? Please let me be like everybody else. You talked
0: to God, right, when you were young. And, and your parents were, were Jewish and secular. um. What was their reaction to you talking to God? Because I, I have to say, you know, in Ju- Judaism doesn't have that kind of personal relationship with God that so many Christians have.
1: You know, well, my father grew up Orthodox, and nobody ever knew that I was talking to God. Who would know that unless God was telling them? I mean, you know, that was my personal um That was my personal relationship. And it began when um, I was separated from my father for a year because my brother had been sick and my mother and my grandmother and the two children had to go to Miami Beach for the school year. And my father, a dentist, had to stay behind in New Jersey and came to visit as often as he could. But you know, it was a long time ago. People didn't jump on planes then. And when I was separated from my beloved father is when I started talking to God. I believed that it was up to me to protect him. I had to keep him safe. I had to keep him well. A terrible burden, you know, for a nine-year-old kid or eight, really, when I when I left. Um, and so I would make all kinds of bargains with God, and I had little, little prayers that I repeated a certain number of times a day, and I hung on to it for a while. Did you raise your children with religion? You know, I was kind of angry at organized religion there for a while, and I wanted it to be different. I wanted something different, and I, I, read about a rabbi who did things differently, and I I wanted to be a part of his group. I wanted my kids to do it. That never happened. But um, we tried joining a synagogue and sending the kids to Sunday school. It didn't work for me. I just felt they were learning things that I didn't like, and they were not and Bar Mitzvah. What were your children being taught in Sunday school that you didn't approve of? I didn't like um, how much we are the chosen people and we are different and we are better. Um, I didn't like that. My guest is Judy Bloom. The film adaptation
0: of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is now out in theaters. The new documentary, Judy Bloom Forever, is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with Judy Bloom, who became famous for her pre-teen and teen novels like Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Forever, Deanie, and Superfudge. Are You There, God? has been adapted into a new movie, which is now out in theaters. Your books have meant so much in the lives of your young readers because, you know, they were hungry for this kind of material that spoke honestly about puberty and first love and first kisses and beyond first kisses. And a lot of your readers wrote you to share their secrets, to ask you for your advice. There's like cartons and cartons and cartons of those letters now in the Yale Archive and you read some of those letters in the movie, some of the letter writers who were found as adults read read the letters that they wrote you in their teens. Um, but it's it's interesting that you felt this sense of responsibility to write back to them. I don't know how many of the readers you actually um, responded to, but why did you feel that sense of responsibility to correspond back as opposed to just having a standard – Thank you for
1: your note. I don't want to mislead the listeners here thinking that I wrote back to every kid because at one point I was getting 2,000 letters a month, so that wouldn't have been possible. But, but I read them, and um, some of them just... I don't know how you could possibly ignore them. I mean, they were so in need, and they they trusted me and at one point I did have to consult a professional because I got to the point where there were kids who I felt I had to save and I didn't know how to save them and um, and the therapist that I saw about this helped me understand that that wasn't my job, that I couldn't do that, but what I could do was be um, I could be a trusted adult friend. You know,
0: you've said that your own children didn't come to you for advice in the way that your readers did. How did you interpret that? What did you think that that said to you, both as an author and as a mother?
1: Well, I think um, my kids were like The other kids, the kids who were writing to me sometimes, and it's easier to tell somebody who's not at the breakfast table the next morning, um, somebody you might never meet, somebody who might not even be real, but you believe that she is. Uh, I wasn't a perfect mother, you know? I wasn't the mother that all those kids thought I would be if only I could be their mother. It's hard. It's so hard. I mean, I wanted to be, I wanted desperately to be the kind of parent that my kids could come to. And sometimes they did. Sometimes they did. Um, You know, they could ask me questions. They certainly knew that, and they would get answers to their questions. Um, Things that were going on in their own lives, they didn't always come to me. Did they read your books? Did they know that you
0: were a sympathetic figure in terms of understanding the world of teenagers?
1: Yes, they absolutely read my books. <laughs> they knew my books very well. How did that affect your relationship with them? <sighs> we could talk about characters in other books because talking about characters is so much easier than talking about yourself or your mom. It's So it's not me and you. It's Karen and her mother or, you know, it's another character and her parent. And so we were sometimes able to do that. It got harder when they were mid-teenage years. I mean, it, those are hard years, you know. What can I say? We've come through it, thank goodness.
0: Um. You grew up um, in the 50s and you met your first husband when you were a sophomore in college. I think you got married before you graduated and then you had your first child soon after. He was already a lawyer. You didn't know who you were yet. And so after that, you became on the outside a kind of conventional you know, mother, homemaker, wife in suburban New Jersey where none of the women in your neighborhood worked, and neither did you until you started writing a few years later.
1: Yeah, but I started writing early on. Really, you know, I had a first career. I made felt pictures in my basement, and I sold them to Bloomingdale's, which was a very heady experience. Um, I carried them in a suitcase and took the train into New York with my samples and the, and they bought them. They paid me 9 dollars a piece and they sold them for 18 dollars and it was Wait, describe one of these. I bought fabric um in the little fabric store in Westfield, New Jersey and I had little boards that I made them on. I made ballerinas and soldiers and it was a picture that you hung on your child's wall and it had your child's name on it and um, they were made to order. It sounds so ridiculous. I can't even tell you how thrilling it was for me to do that because suddenly I had work. I needed desperately to have creative work. It could have been any creative work. You know, the possibilities that I saw was work that I could do at home with the kids. But after a couple of years, you know, my fingers, um, I have a lot of allergies, and I had a bad reaction to the glue I was using. So I had to find another career. And that's when I started to write. When you discovered
0: feminism, you... Um, Was it exciting to find women like you who want to break out of the traditional role they had been cast in?
1: Yes, that was very exciting. That didn't really happen for me until I started to write and get published my early books and maybe go to some meetings. Actually, you know, I I took a class, and even that was a huge thing. That class was in the 60s, and it was— at my alma mater, NYU, and it was a continuing education class in writing for kids through the tweens. And it spoke to me because that's what I was starting to do. And I decided to take that class. That was, I know, nobody can understand this today, but that was such a big thing in my life that every Monday, I was going to get on a bus and go to New York City and I wasn't going to be there for supper, and my first husband was going to have to um, deal with the kids, and he took them out, you know, he took them out someplace for spaghetti or hamburgers, Um, but he did it, and he put them to bed. They were asleep when I came home. That was the kind of the first thing I did, aside from the felt pictures, um, you know, for me and something that I needed to do. And I did it. I know I need to let you go,
0: but there's just one more question I want to ask you. How do you like the new movie
1: adaptation of your novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret? I am so lucky. I love it so much. It's so right. And after so many years of saying no, 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 and take it off the table, I would say to my agent, this is off the table. I don't want to hear anything about anybody wanting to do it. Um, I got this fabulous letter, um, but that wouldn't be enough because I've had a lot of fabulous letters, but she had a real credential. This um, Kelly Freeman Craig was the writer and director of a movie that I had seen and loved when she told me that this was her movie, The Edge of Seventeen. I mean, I'd seen it not that long before I got her message. And she said to me, and my mentor is James L. Brooks, and he worked with me every step of the way on The Edge of Seventeen, and he would do the same if you granted us the right to do this. And they came to Key West, and they saw me, and it was a wonderful afternoon of talking, and I... Thought yes, I'm going to do this, and they were so inclusive. Unlike other experiences that I had had, I was in there too, and I was on the set for five weeks, and it was a collaboration.
0: I just love that. Like you stopped writing, but now your works are coming back to you in different form, with love. They are. Yes, yeah. I'm
1: very lucky. Thank you.
0: Well, congratulations on on the new movies and uh, it was great to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. Judy Bloom is the subject of the new documentary Judy Bloom Forever. The film adaptation of Are You There God, It's Me Margaret is now out in theaters, like the novel the film tells the story of a 6th grader and her anxieties about boys, puberty, religion, and her recent move to suburban New Jersey with her parents. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review.
2: Given the recent uptick in book bans nationwide, it feels right that Judy Bloom should be back so prominently in the conversation. Over the past several decades, the 85-year-old author has seen more than a few of her novels yanked from school library shelves— starting with her 1970 classic, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. None of that kept the book, with its frank treatment of an adolescent girl's inner life, from becoming a huge bestseller and an enduring touchstone. And now, more than 50 years later, it's been terrifically adapted to the big screen by the writer-director Kelly Fremont Craig, with nearly all its warmth, humor, and wry wisdom intact. One of the best things about the movie is that it resists the temptation to update Bloom's book to the present day, likely realizing that a version set in the era of social media would be a markedly different story. And so it's the 70s when young Margaret Simon, winningly played by Abby Ryder Fortson, returns home from summer camp and learns, to her horror, that she and her parents are leaving their cozily cluttered New York City apartment and moving to a house in suburban New Jersey. It's a major upheaval for an 11 year old though margaret is soon befriended by her new neighbor and fellow sixth grader nancy played by l graham nancy a bossy know-it-all wastes no time bringing margaret into her secret girls club where she presses them to talk about whether they've gotten their periods and whether they've started wearing bras feeling the pressure margaret goes bra shopping with her mom in a sweetly funny scene later Nancy gives her and the other two girls in the club a few tips. If you want to get out of those small bras, you're going to have to do the same exercise and technique I do. There's an exercise? Of course there is. You hold your arms out like this and you say, I must, I must, I must increase my bust. I must, I must, I must increase my bust. Does that really work? I'm living proof. Now come on, get up, get up, get up, get up. You'll see. Get up. I must, I must. I must increase my bust! I must! must. I must decrease my bust! We must! must. We We must! must. We must decrease our bust! We must! To further speed along the process, Margaret begins praying every day and night, starting off each time with a nervous, Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And so her anxieties about her body lead her into a deeper curiosity about her soul. Unlike a lot of her friends, Margaret wasn't brought up in any religious tradition, for reasons the movie gradually makes clear. Her father, Herb, played by Benny Safdie, is Jewish, and her mother, Barbara, played by Rachel McAdams, is Christian. Their marriage caused a lot of family drama years earlier, and they've kept religion out of the house ever since. But tensions persist. While Margaret is very close to her Jewish grandmother, played by a scene-stealing Kathy Bates... She has yet to even meet her maternal grandparents, who cut off contact with her mom after she got married. That long standing rift sets the stage for some big emotional reckonings in the third act, which the movie plays for generous laughs, but also real poignancy. As she showed in her enjoyable coming of age movie, The Edge of Seventeen, director Fremont Craig has a gift for mining humor and drama from her characters in equal measure. She also has a terrific cast including newcomer Fortson, who reveals Margaret's decency and sweetness, but also her capacity for thoughtlessness and cruelty. But the movie's most memorable character is Margaret's mother, Barbara. For those of us who still remember and cherish McAdams' performance as the villainous Regina George and Mean Girls, there's something especially moving about seeing her here, playing the loving, protective mom to a young girl, facing her own battle with peer pressure. But Barbara's own personal struggles—she's an artist who gave up a rewarding teaching career in New York to be a stay-at-home suburban mom—are no less dramatic than her daughters. McAdams is simply luminous as a woman trying to strike a balance between sensible authority figure and boho-free spirit. One of the most radical things about Bloom's book was its suggestion that kids could come to their own conclusions about faith, that religion wasn't something that should be foisted on them. The movie honors that conviction. Margaret doesn't join a church or synagogue, but she experiences her own kind of epiphany. She learns that puberty can hit at any time, but real maturity often comes later. She learns that everyone has their insecurities, and that everyone, from the unpopular kid in class to a queen bee like Nancy, deserves to be treated with kindness. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, doesn't pretend to have all the answers. But by the end, this awkward preteen has achieved her own state of grace.
0: Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Coming up, we'll hear from journalist Virginia Sol Smith, author of the new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Most children, by the time they reach school age, believe that being thin makes them more valuable to society. That's according to a new book by journalist Virginia Sol Smith called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And by middle school, Sol Smith says, more than a quarter of children will have been put on a diet. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, about why she believes our obsession with thinness is more harmful to kids than being fat.
3: If the latest frenzy around the diabetes drug Ozempic for weight loss is any indication, we are a weight-obsessed culture. And our obsession, according to Virginia Sol Smith, starts pretty young, before most children have even entered kindergarten. And they get it from their parents. In the new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, Soul Smith lays out how we've tangled health, beauty, and morality, and how reversing fatness, as she puts it, has become our society's passion project, our most popular national pastime with damaging consequences, because as science has shown us, diets do not work. Virginia Soulsmith is a journalist and author who began her career writing for women's magazines. She's the author of The Eating Instinct Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, and a contributor to the New York Times and Scientific American. Soulsmith also produces the newsletter and podcast Burnt Toast, where she explores fat phobia, diet culture, parenting, and health. Her latest book, Fat Talk Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, is out now. Virginia Soulsmith, welcome to Fresh Air.
4: Thank you. It's so great to be here. Before we get
3: started, I want to talk a little about language because we'll be using the term fat as a neutral descriptor. And I want to ask, how does reclaiming the word fat help in efforts to fight anti-fat bias?
4: It's really the starting point, but it is a difficult starting point for a lot of people. You know, when I hear from parents on this issue... One of the most common questions that comes up is they'll say, "You know, my child pointed to some lady in the grocery store and said, why is her tummy so fat? And what the parent wants to do is rush in and say, don't say fat, that's not nice. But as soon as you do that, you've told your child that fat is not an okay way to be. So if we can step back from that and we can instead say, yep, bodies come in lots of shapes and sizes, some people are thin, some people are fat. And use fat in a neutral way like that, we really take all the power out of the word. We make it something that can't be weaponized against us. And that really is the first step towards starting to dismantle anti-fat bias.
3: Why did you want to focus your book on the parenting aspect of this issue around anti-fat bias?
4: Well, part of it is being a parent myself. You know, this is like work I'm really in the trenches in, and thinking about, you know, I'm raising two girls and thinking about Their understanding of their bodies. I think this is something that's common to Gen X and Millennial parents. We're very aware that we grew up in the diet culture of the 1980s and 1990s, where there was a lot of toxic messaging around bodies, and we know we don't want to pass that on to our kids. But I think a lot of parents aren't really sure what else we do. And I, in talking to parents over the years a lot of the questions I would get would be from parents saying, you know, I want them to love themselves. I want them to have a good relationship with their body and food, but I also don't want them to be fat, right? And I realized as long as we're putting contingencies around who gets to love their body, who gets to have that free and easy relationship with food, body love, if you know, to whatever extent that even exists and is possible, is not going to be possible for anyone because it's always going to be contingent on having the right kind of body.
3: Hmm. Body love, yes, but one through line. In your book is the perception that an overweight child is a sign of bad parenting. And you say very plainly that a child's body size is not a parent or caregiver's fault. This sounds so obvious, but it's something that you really had to lay out and then provide data and research behind.
4: Yeah, I mean, parents are held, and particularly mothers, are held responsible for our child's bodies even before we have them. I mean, if you talk to any person trying to conceive, weight is really on their mind. There's a lot of emphasis on being at a, quote, healthy weight to get pregnant, or how much weight can you gain during a pregnancy? And I've done reporting for the New York Times Magazine. I did a piece a few years ago that really got me thinking about this, where we saw that most fertility clinics in the country actually have BMI cutoffs where they won't give you fertility treatment if you're in a, a you know, if you're over a certain weight, and there really wasn't science to support that. That really was about the fertility industry trying to protect their stats. They want to treat people who are easy to get pregnant so that their clinics have high success rates and they see fat bodies as harder and more complicated to treat. It's not necessarily what the science says, but right off the bat, we can see that women in particular are being judged for their fitness as parents through their bodies. And then after you have the baby or adopt or, you know, however you make your family, Parents are then held responsible for how their kids are eating and their child's body size. And this comes at us from all directions, from the pediatrician, from other parents, from family members. You know, there's all these sources that kind of come at us and tell us if our kid isn't like right around that 50th percentile mark on the growth chart, that we're doing something wrong.
3: Well, I'm curious, what are your thoughts about scales at home?
4: I think one of the best things parents can do, or really anybody, whether you're a parent or not, is to not have a scale in your home. There's really no reason for it. Um, You know, there was, so my own daughter has a chronic heart condition, and when she was an infant, we did have to have a scale to monitor her weight because we were concerned about weight loss, and we wanted to make sure she was gaining. Like, of course, there are gonna be specific medical situations where weight monitoring is necessary, usually in terms of weight gain. But that being said, It's not usually data that's particularly helpful to the patient. And so, you know, does that need to be something that you're doing in your home? Probably not. And the risks to kids of having scales around that is really dramatic. There's a family in the book that I profile. you know, who was dealing with a lot of body anxiety, food anxieties, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the ways they identified that their younger daughter was really struggling was the fact that she started weighing herself before and after every meal. And if her weight went up at the end of eating lunch, she would try to eat less at dinner. And that is a really dangerous pattern. She was nine years old.
3: Mm. You know, in thinking about the language that we use, Can you describe thin privilege and what that might look like in the day-to-day?
4: Yes. Thin privilege is a concept that I think is tricky to get our heads around because if you have it, you don't really see how much you have it. I mean, it's a lot like white privilege in that way. Um, because you don't see how much it's benefiting you. But what we're talking about with thin privilege is the fact that if you are someone who can wear straight sizes, you know, you can walk into the gap or target or whatever and find your size easily on the rack. If you have that kind of benefit, and straight
3: sizes are like zero to 18,
4: uh, zero, zero to 14, I would say. 0 to
3: 14.
4: Um, Yeah, most retail, like the straight size section caps out at 12 or 14, and then plus sizes is like 16 and up, yeah. Um So if you're someone who wears a size 14 or smaller, you have some straight size privilege or thin privilege. And that means that you can get clothes that fit your body. It means when you go to the doctor, your weight is not the first and often only thing that's talked about. It means you can sit on an airplane and not worry about buckling the seatbelt. You can go to a restaurant without worrying, you know, will they have boots that are too tight for you to get into? Will the chairs have arms that are too tight? Physical spaces are built for your body. And whatever your own personal struggles might be, because of course, then people get eating disorders, then people struggle with this stuff too. We're all harmed by anti-fat bias. Whatever your personal struggles are, you are not. your body is not a target for the world in the way that someone in a bigger body is. And what's also sort of nuanced and tricky about thin privilege is the fact that you can be fat and still be benefiting from thin privilege relative to someone fatter than you. So I think there's a lot of Gray area where people get hung up. I identify as small fat. I wear like a 16, 18, 20. And so I can order clothes mostly only online, not so much in person stores, but I can get clothes that fit my body pretty easily. Um, You know, I can take weight out of the conversation with a healthcare provider. I have certainly experienced medical weight stigma, but if I say I don't want to get on the scale, they respect that decision. That's not available to someone who's in a bigger body than me. So that's where it's sort of helpful to think about how am I able to move through the world in this body in a way that someone else isn't? And why are we okay with the fact that the world is not built to include all bodies?
3: Let's go back to how parents can have the fat talk. Um One of the challenges that parents face is how to talk to their kids about weight and health without perpetuating these harmful stereotypes or inadvertently promoting diet culture. And in the book, you tell the story of Harry and Dana. They're parents of two children. Harry and Dana's relationship with food growing up had a direct impact on their parenting. Um, I actually find that my children are hyper aware of my eating habits, for instance. And I know my feelings about my body were informed by the knowledge that my mom was always on a diet. Was that connection surprising to you?
4: No, because that's, (laughs) it rings true with my own experiences. It's, you know, anytime I talk to anybody about their relationship with food, it always comes back to things that their parents said or did. And I want to be really clear. There's a lot of blaming of parents around all of this, as we talked about. And I don't blame the parents. I think we're all struggling. We're all swimming through the soup, and we're getting these messages that our bodies are our value and that we have to control our body size. And I think very often it's super well-intentioned from parents. You know, if you grew up fat and you experienced teasing and bullying, you want to protect your kid from having that same experience. Or if you grew up thin, but you remember teasing a fat kid in your class, or you, you know, you've seen it play out, you know how fat people are treated, and you want to protect your kid from that. And you know that you will be judged as a parent, and you want to protect yourself. So it's very understandable. But the mistake parents make, and I think the mistake that Harry and Dana realized they were making in the way they were handling food with their kids is that we try to control the food, we try to control the kids' bodies. Instead of saying, home should be your safe place, your body should be unconditionally safe and loved and respected here. And we will help you navigate the world where this, that is not true.
3: Have you had that conversation with your children that your body is safe here at home? Not just you, but, but your
4: body. We do talk about it. Um, Both my girls have a fair amount of thin privilege right now. So we haven't, you know, they haven't come home saying someone called me fat. We haven't navigated that yet. It may very well happen. um, But, you know, that hasn't come up for us. But what I also do with them is I use fat constantly in a very matter-of-fact way, even in a positive way, to describe my own body um, and to describe other fat bodies of people we love. So they know that fat is not a bad thing and that that is not something to fear.
3: Social media is influencing how young people, especially teenagers, um, think they're supposed to look and supposed to act. So many things. How do we talk to our kids about body image and social media and what they're seeing there? Because a lot of times it's out of our control.
4: Yeah, this is like probably the scariest part of the book for me to write was figuring out the social media stuff because... You know, as someone who's been in media for 20 years, I'm very aware of the messaging we put out there. And, you know, again, I was a creator of diet culture for a long time. And I'm aware that social media has really turned up the volume on that. You know, when I was a teenager in the 90s, I got my magazines once a month and read them. But then they went, you know, they went on my walls or they went in the recycling bin and I moved on. Now it's in our phones and it's in our faces all the time. It's this fire hose of images that said social media is also a great opportunity there this is how we have been able to elevate a lot of these conversations a lot of this activism and so you can talk to your kid about what they're consuming you can work with them to curate their feeds to find you know amazing fat representation whatever sport hobby interest your child has roller skating kayaking Rock climbing, you name it, you can find a fat person doing it on Instagram and living their best life. And that is a is a gift because we don't have good representation of fat people in a lot of media, in a lot of, you know, books, TV shows, movies, we still don't have enough fat actors. But the fact that you can show your kid, like, look, whatever your body size, you can do the things you love and you can find that on social media is really powerful. But we do have to think a lot about, you know, teaching media literacy skills, teaching kids to be critical, to think about the sources they're encountering, to understand that just because someone put a statement on a pretty image (laughs) on Instagram or TikTok, it doesn't mean it's true.
3: You've created um, this really strong community through Burnt Toast, your your podcast and newsletter. I'm just curious, though, about the public's reaction to your work. Because a few years ago, I interviewed author and fat activist Virgie Tovar about her book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. And I never received so much hate mail than when I did that subject. I, and You know, I do a lot of subjects. I I talk about a lot of things. What is what has been the public's reaction to your work?
4: Yeah, you're probably going to get some hate mail after this episode, too. (laughs) Um, You know, burnt toast has been such a gift in my life because it is this real safe space. It's this community of people who want to be doing this work, who want to engage in these conversations. And we can really support each other in doing this, which has been phenomenal. Whenever I write about this topic for a mainstream media outlet, it is a completely different experience. The comment section is almost always um, majority hateful comments, and a lot of them end up in my email and my Twitter and Instagram DMs. And it's a really exhausting experience to, you know, to sort of wade through that onslaught. So whenever I write about these things for mainstream places, I kind of have to—I know going in, you know, when I wrote about— the guidelines, the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines for the New York Times. I knew going in it was gonna be rough, and it was. (laughs) And I remember the night the piece came out, Aubrey Gordon, who's an incredible fat activist, texted me and was like, How are you doing? Because anytime one of us goes on the front lines of this, it is a rough gig. And you know, we see that you're you're taking your turn. At the same time, you know, I am a multiply privileged person. I am again a small fat end of the spectrum. I'm white. Um, and so a lot of other folks have it way worse than me. Virgie definitely gets it way worse since she's a person of color. Aubrey gets it way worse. Um, And so I'm very aware whenever I experience it that this is the really ugly part of this conversation and this is something we need to address to make it safer for people to tell their stories. But it's also in some ways like not where we can be doing the work right now because we... You know, there's only so much you can do when someone is an internet troll who's just sending you fat insult after fat insult in your DMs. Like there's no reasoning with that person, you know. So all you can do at that point is protect yourself and figure out what you need to move through that.
3: Virginia Soul Smith, thank you so
0: much for this conversation.
4: Thank you. This was amazing.
0: Virginia Soul Smith is the author of the new book Fat Talk: Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. She spoke with guest interviewer Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited, By Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.